0: Welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast about how data-driven insights can power smarter business decisions. Welcome to another episode of Data Dialogues. I'm your host, Gail Wetzel, and I'm so excited to be joined by Bill Franks, who leads the Center for Statistics and Analytical Research within the School of Data Science and Analytics at Kennesaw State University. Bill's one of our key partners in the Academic Partnerships Program. Bill, you're one of our key partners in our Academic Partnership Program, and Equifax has been a charter member of the Board of Advisors since 2016, when we launched the Equifax Data Science Research Lab at KSU and we were looking to apply research to address global issues related to credit access, identity, verification, and fraud. So we've done a lot with you in the last few years, so welcome. And can you tell us a little more about yourself and your work at KSU?
1: Yeah, so I'm a long-time analytics person from back, I guess, before it was called analytics even spent most of my career out in business world and came to KSU maybe about a year and a half ago. So in my years of the business world I did a lot on the consulting side helping large companies solve problems with their data. And what's unique about this role at KSU is that it's an outward reaching center. As you mentioned, we work with companies like Equifax on joint projects where we're assigning professors and students instead of maybe partners and consultants, but conceptually it's very close, right? To me, it's the same operational model of how I would manage these projects and such. And our goal here then is to get the students and faculty access to real problems and real corporate data that enables the company, obviously, to make some progress on some problems that they have, but then also allows the students and faculty to make progress on their research, their dissertations, et cetera, as it relates to the, you know, their academic needs as well. So it's a really nice partnership that we have with Equifax through the center. And I think it's the model that we like with others as well. We end up with some papers, some patents, and some students getting some terrific experience that prepares them for their job.
0: Well, again, thanks for joining. And today we're going to talk about data scientists and how to give effective presentations, which, yes, I'm a data scientist and I like the numbers, Bill. But, you know, sometimes we need to tell a story about our data and You've done a lot of work in that area, so can you tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts about giving effective presentations?
1: Yeah, it's a timely topic. So just, I guess it's been almost two months ago now, you know, I had a new book come out called Winning the Room, and the subtitle is Creating and Delivering an Effective Data-Driven Presentation. And the motivation for the book was the years I spent both presenting myself, but also watching others present. In a business context then combined with coming to a university and seeing students taking their first pass at presentations and as i think you know and everybody who is in the analytics community knows as well as their business partners analytics people aren't always that great at the communicating of the results and so the one theme i always stress when i talk to people is that i believe personally that at most 50 percent of the success of an analytical project is going to be the results, the accuracy and the power of the results that you have. And at most, at least 50% is going to be how you package and present and then sell the stakeholders on those results to get them to take some type of action. And in an ideal world, of course, we'd like it to all be about the facts and the figures, especially as analytics practitioners. But the, the reality is it's not. Now, that doesn't mean that the accurate results aren't critical, because obviously you have to have accurate results. It's just that that doesn't get you anywhere near the finish line because you've got to get these folks who are often non-technical, who don't understand what you did, to often in 15 to 20 minutes understand everything about a multi-month project and why it matters to them. And you just simply can't go into a lot of technical details and you have to bring it up a level for that audience.
0: So what are some you know, key fundamentals that a data scientist should consider when you know, they're putting their presentations together.
1: Well, the one thing I think is that you have to flip and look at yourself, not just look at your end clients or stakeholders. And what I mean by that is it's very common to hear analytical folks go, these business people just don't get it. Or, you know, I'm explaining this to them and they're not getting it. They don't understand, etc." And there could be merit in that, right? There are, there are obviously some business people who could use a little more training, but you know, one of the biggest topics today in our field is data literacy, and the mistake that is made in the scenario I just outlined is thinking that literacy is just about the reading or consuming of information. In other words, it's the fault of the audience for not being prepared to understand what I'm saying. But if you look up literacy in the dictionary, it's reading and writing, delivering and consuming. And so it's as much on you as the presenter to match your content to the audience appropriately as it is for that audience to be prepared to receive it. And so, you know, the way I like to describe this is I could go and give a talk on analytics to three sets of students today. I might go, let's say I go to an elementary school, a high school and a graduate school. I could have a conversation about analytics with each of those audiences, but it better be a very different conversation based on what group of students I'm talking to, because they have a completely different level of baseline knowledge and understanding from which, to draw from. And so it's on me as much as the speaker to get my message tuned to the right level for the audience as it is for that audience to be prepared enough to receive what I'm stating. And I think a lot of analytical folks go a little too far on thinking that the problem is with their audience when in fact the problem is often actually with them. They're going in much too much technical detail and depth for the audience that they're speaking to.
0: And that's a great point, Bill technical significance and get into the technical details. How can we overcome that? I mean, how can we give more effective presentations? And given that we want to talk something technical.
1: So I think the key is, you've got to remember, it's not about what you want. It's about what your audience needs. And your audience is an often non-technical business audience. So they don't want, they don't need a bunch of technical details. They need to understand that you took care of those details and they may have somebody on their team who wants to dig deeper into that with you later. But you've got to focus on the pragmatic business implications of what you found. So one of the biggest mistakes folks make will be talking about, say, statistical or technical significance. You know, oh, these were statistically significant. And so it's a great finding. But. There are tons of things that are statistically significant, but just not meaningful from a business perspective. So let's take a classic case of marketing lift analysis. I could come back and say that, you know, we have 99 plus percent confidence that the lift is 10% to 11%. And that sounds great, but if that promotion is gonna cost four times normal product cost to fulfill, because maybe it's a buy one, get one with free shipping or something, then it's not gonna pay out. It's a non-starter. And so, you know, This doesn't apply just to analytics folks either. You can imagine if you're an engineer and I come back and say, I've built this building that's got an award-winning design and holds double the weight load that our building was required, that sounds great unless it's too big for the plot of land that we have to put it on. And so this is the key, I think, that analytical folks shoot themselves in the foot a lot is, yeah, you want to pay attention to those technical indicators of importance or of an effect being present, but you always then have to put the lens on it of, Will that matter in the business context where we wish to apply it? And, is, and even more than that, is there anything that the sponsor can do even if they did believe this? And so I saw an example with a fast food chain one time where they had done a lot of analysis and had a new menu item prepared. Well, it ended up that the, the menu item required a piece of equipment that was not in all of the locations. In fact, it wasn't in very many of them. And a lot of the locations, even if they wanted to put one in at great expense, didn't have the space. And so it was an example where if the team had examined the practical realities and constraints ahead of their analysis, they would have uh, saved a whole lot of time and money because they got to the point of recommending an item that got shot down. Hey, we're glad people like it. We're glad it tastes great. We're glad that you're projecting a certain amount of revenue, but we can't we literally cannot operationally implement it. So go back and do something else. And that's a black eye to anybody on that team, obviously, because they should have known better.
0: Okay, so let's talk analogies. How do they help with getting a highly technical point across?
1: So, this is where I think I'm I differ with a lot of people. I know many technical people hate analogies. They, you know, and the claim is that if you're resorting to an analogy, it's because you can't explain it effectively. I can almost buy that if it's a tech-to-tech conversation, but I still think analogies are helpful. They help me understand things. And so what I found is when I am struggling to figure out how to get a point across to a non-technical person a lot of times it's not that I sit and go I want to come up with an analogy for this but I find that as I'm attempting to explain it eventually I'll come up with one almost you know on the fly or as I'm planning the presentation thinking how am I going to explain this it'll hit me oh it's kind of like this other scenario and people like that I can tell you that, Over the years, I have worked a ton of analogies into my presentations. In fact, two of the most popular analogies I've ever used around analytics involve fleas in a jar and frozen yogurt business models, which on the surface sound kind of ridiculous. They'd have nothing to do with analytics, but I can tell you in the case of the frozen yogurt shop model, it was talking about the need to change analytical architectures in a way to allow more innovation and such. And I'd have people months after I would visited with a company come and go, oh yeah, Bill, we're still, uh, we're implementing the yogurt shop. They wouldn't talk about the architecture. They wouldn't talk about the technical things. It was about the yogurt shop, but they knew what that meant. And we all understood it. And better yet, people who aren't quite as technical will remember generally, yeah, I get how that would happen in a yogurt shop. And I trust that these people know how it'll happen with analytics. And so that's why I always love to put in the analogies. And what I always say is, even in the book, I think I make this point, I'll bet that a reader will remember some of my analogies more explicitly than the underlying concept. The analogy will lead you to the concept, but that's the whole reason you use it, because even technical people, the analogies will stick in your head.
0: So let's talk numbers. You know, I'm a data scientist, right? What kind of numbers resonate with audiences? Should I show the least amount or a lot of numbers? What do you recommend?
1: The fewest numbers possible at the lowest level of precision possible. You want to keep it incredibly simple. So, you know, one example I use in the book is let's just say I had only five products across four quarters. Well, that's 20 cells of data if I put it in a table. Now, if I put totals at the column and row level, you know, plus an overall total, I've added another 10. So that's 30 numbers on a screen. The reality is nobody can read and absorb 30 numbers simultaneously, especially while you're talking and telling a story. They're going to be sitting there possibly looking at not the set of numbers you wanted to. Maybe I wanted them to look at product three, but now they're busy pondering about product five because they see something intriguing. So the point I always make is you might need that five by four table with totals, and you might have that in an appendix. You might have that in a leave behind, but while you're presenting live, you're probably talking about one row, one column, one cell of data, maybe how two cells are compared. Whatever those points are, create a slide that is exactly that. So if you're looking at one product's trend for the year, a simple bar chart that has that product sales by year with, a, with some kind of trend arrow is gonna get across that point. Then you move on to your next point and you have another simple chart that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Over a series of slides, I could end up effectively covering that entire table. But I'm doing it in small, digestible pieces with very specific points where the audience doesn't have to struggle to understand the data on every page because there's very little data to have to absorb. It's one quick, you know, number or two, one quick trend on a chart. And so I think that's the main thing. It it gets back to there's the data that you have, which should be extensive and detailed. But then there's the data you're going to show live, which should be very specific, targeted extracts of that that are as minimalistic as possible.
0: Bill, we typically here being at Equifax with giving results as data scientists, we like to show results in diagrams or histograms. What do you recommend in this space?
1: So I think the key is you want to avoid Super technical diagrams. And, you know, one example, I know people who are into systems architecture and stuff love to show their system architecture diagrams with all the various computers and tools all connected. You know, maybe, uh, you know, statisticians might love to show uh, or data scientists love to show how the guts of a model work. You know, maybe they're running a, a neural net for image recognition. and They want to show how all this, you know, structure of the model is set up. The reality is it's very important the person doing those things understands that level of detail, but your non-technical audience really couldn't care less. And the reason I hate when people show those is it has a couple of negative effects. First of all, you're reinforcing the pre-assumption that a non-technical audience makes, which is, uh uh-oh, there's going to be these technical folks come in to talk to us, and they're just going to be too technical. They're not going to understand my business. may not be fair, but that's kind of the assumption. The more you play into that, the harder it is for you to succeed. But secondarily, you could go to a lot of effort to explain the technical details of those diagrams, like the architecture behind image recognition model. And I can tell you that at the end of the day, your non-technical audience probably really didn't get it as you explained it. They're certainly not going to remember and get it later. And so you've wasted valuable time trying to go into a level of detail that really isn't appropriate and that the audience doesn't care about. So I would say try and avoid any of those technical type diagrams. Again, they're great for an appendix. Maybe there's someone technical on the executive's team who will call up later and go, hey, I need to see the backup on how you did that. And you can whip it out right in and show them as you have it prepared. But the more you get into highly technical details, the more you're going to lose that audience. And it gets back to the, one of the points we talked about around making sure that you're talking to the level of the audience and keeping it as simple as possible.
0: So another point that's important as far as giving presentation is talking about results. How can data scientists best position results?
1: Yeah, I think there's really two things I'll zero in on this. One is always position them as positively as possible. I'm not saying that you're ever misleading or that you're ever covering up negatives, but analysts sometimes are very eager to do all of the caveats, all of the assumptions that could have gone wrong, all of the potential negatives. And the thing is, within our discipline, again, we're used to that. We get it and we know to look past it a typical business person, the more caveats they hear, the more they get scared off from doing anything at all. So, you know, one example would be, let's say you have a product portfolio and all you've done so far is an analysis uh, for an upcoming promotional rollout. And there's a problem with the data for one of the products. And let's say you have two dozen products. One product has a problem. So oftentimes an analytical person might come in and say, yeah, you know, We've got some great results. Unfortunately, product 24, we don't have any information on yet. It's going to take us a little while before we can round it out and recommend this for the whole portfolio. But here are the results for the first 23. And the thing there is you've put this whole negative spin on it. You've made it sound like everything's a stop until that last product is in. I think you could flip that around and it goes like this. You'd say... We have great news. For 23 of our 24 products, we've got the data that shows this is a no-brainer and we can start rolling it out tomorrow. There's a couple things we have to look into for product 24. We'll have that within the next few days. And you know, assuming it's just as good, we'll be able to you know, begin rolling that out as well. It's just a matter of whether you focus on the positive or negative aspects of those findings. The more you can focus on the positive aspects, the more you're going to have your audience get excited and come along with you. And then tied to that is always look for the bigger picture as well. Maybe we were asked to analyze one promotion today, right now. We certainly want to address that specific ask. But to the extent we can then say how those results tie to some of the bigger initiatives at play, that's a big bonus. So let's assume the example I use in the book is around, you know, we have a a honey company. And there's two of the big strategic initiatives are to grow the org. Organic business and get some direct to consumer relationships. So there's a promotion that we've done for Organic Honey that was direct to consumer, one of the first, and it worked. That's great. But we also want to, during the presentation, say and keep in mind the other benefit of this, what we found here is that two of our top five strategic initiatives in the next three to five years, which, by the way, are the same ones that'll get everyone in that room promoted and get them big bonuses and raises if they succeed. We've tied this promotion into two of those five themes. So this is a great proof of the concept that our goal of growing organic and getting consumer relationships can work, albeit this is just the first step. But this is exciting that it didn't just make us money this quarter as we hope, but it's teeing us up for success in the coming years. And I think that's the important kind of thing to put on as well is is there's often a context in which you're presenting information. If you can tie it to an even bigger and more important context, then you're going to get a lot of people very interested in hearing more and then taking action.
0: Certainly agree. I know that with us, we have goals that we have to achieve, and certainly we need to do a good job of associating uh, some of the results with our goals. So good point. Thank you. And I know with today's environment, things are so different as far as giving presentations. Everyone's on Zoom. And given effective presentations, those points are certainly really important today as far as, you know, that type of environment also.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you the one, the the biggest difference on a Zoom, and I personally am not a a big fan of the the virtual meetings because you really lose, you do lose a lot. There's little thumbnails of people, but you can't get a feel for the vibe in the room or the energy. You can't really see the faces. But the most important thing I always tell folks about if you're online is that if you're speaking, whether you're speaking as in you're giving a presentation or whether you're just speaking, asking a question or adding a comment, Whenever you're speaking, you have to ignore everybody's picture on that screen and stare at the little camera on your computer. And the reason is that when we're in person, the social norms say you want to look at somebody. You want to talk directly to them and look them eye to eye. Well, online, our natural inclination then is to look down at the person's picture whom we're talking to. And in our brain, we're connecting with them. We're looking right at their face, eye to eye. We're feeling great. But to the person remote, we just look down and away from the camera, we've actually disconnected. We're actually talking not to them, not at them. And it actually detracts heavily from the impact of the presentation. And so, you know, I always say, I wish there was a toggle button where, as I'm speaking, I could say, turn off all the video. Kind of like you can hit the, you know, you can hit the space bar on some of the applications to temporarily unmute. I wish it was the the video is off unless I ask for it to be on. So if someone's asking me a question, I would maybe put the video on and look at them as they ask it, just so I can see what their demeanor's like as they're asking me the question. But whenever you're speaking, you've got to look right at the camera. And that's very hard. That takes practice. And I sit and remind myself many, many times during a presentation, look at the camera, look at the camera. And I catch myself, particularly if someone asks a question, I'll catch myself looking down at them as I answer it and having to force myself to look back up.
0: And as we're starting to wrap up here, I know it I've looked at your book, you have over a hundred tips as far as recommendations for given effective presentations, which are certainly very insightful. So what are the top three that you would recommend as far as our data scientists focus on?
1: So I guess what I'd say, rather than three specific tips, I'll maybe mention three overall themes that the tips drive to. First of all, it's that you've got to deliver what your audience can absorb and understand and take action on. You don't want to deliver everything that you've done. There's a big gap between those two, right? We do a lot of additional background work to get to our results. Most of the clients just don't really care about that. Second, you've got to put a lot of effort into attempting to interpret and draw some conclusions on behalf of the people you're presenting to. I always feel like it's a huge disservice. if, Even if you've had a fairly successful presentation and the people in the room are happy, and then you say, well, I'd love to hear what you decide to do as a result of this. Please give me an update. And you've left them hanging to put all the threads together and figure out what to do. I'm a big believer in you as the presenter need to say, based on this and based on what you know, I or we, if it's a team project, know about the, the business right now, this is what we think you ought to consider doing. Now, it doesn't mean that that stakeholder will always do what you've said and recommend it, or they might tweak it, and that's fine. But by putting a stake in the ground of what you're seeing, it first, I think, lends a lot of credibility because it's showing you do understand the business. But then secondarily, it avoids that business person who's very busy having to now sit and think through how to make use of all this stuff which we've already talked about they don't necessarily understand so i think that's the second and then the third is you know live presentations can be difficult you could have an audience that's much tougher than you expected much easier than you expected so you've got to be very flexible and adaptable and so you might have your presentation laid out you might have some a good set of slides and talking points but you've got to anticipate that someone's going to come late someone's going to leave early you might have somebody who's very against your the entire theme of what you're doing in the audience who's trying to be very difficult. And you've got to be ready to adapt to that and on the fly. And so that does take practice. It takes not just practice in terms of giving presentations over time to get used to it, but for any given presentation, you've got to really take the time to lay out the presentation, to know the key points, and to know what points you can cut, what points you absolutely have to make, et cetera, as you start to have uh, time disappear while you're going live. Because the worst thing that could happen is you get halfway through a presentation and run out of time and you never even got to all the key points and recommendations. Now the audience just leaves frustrated that you didn't tell them anything. So you've got to always be prepared to adapt on the fly once that presentation starts because they very rarely will go exactly as you anticipate.
0: Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly your book has a lot of rich, knowledgeable information and we look forward to seeing more information that we can grasp or collect from that, from your book.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And it's, you know, it's available. Obviously, it's on Amazon. You can also find information on my website, which is www.bill-franks.com. That's Bill-franks.com.
0: Well, thanks again for joining us. And if you haven't, please, we invite you to listen to our other episodes of our Data Dialogues podcast. And if you would like to be notified of future episodes, hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening. And if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a review.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Data Dialogues from Equifax. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. To keep our legal team happy, We'd like to remind you that nothing in this podcast is legal advice, and we recommend to always consult with your own legal
0: representative to ensure your data use is handled properly. Also, the opinions and views expressed in the podcast are not intended as hard facts and advice.
1: They're also not necessarily the views of Equifax.